Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast, where we interview the best journalists, hosts, and documentarians working today. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff, as are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hey, guys. I like that piece of promotional I know. copy you put on I know. There. It was our biannual <laughs> identifying what the show is. <laughs> yeah. I always like to surprise you guys with it. Um, okay. Can we get a every weekly identification of this week's guest? This week, it's uh, Andy Kroll. Andy, uh, he's covered politics for magazines for many years, including Mother Jones, California Sunday, The Atlantic, National Journal. Um, he was the Washington bureau chief for Rolling Stone. Now he's at ProPublica. But most of what we talked about in this conversation was this book that he has out called Death on W Street, which is about the murder of Seth Rich. Seth Rich was a staffer at the Democratic National Committee. He was killed very tragically on the street in DC in 2016 at the height of the presidential campaign. And his death led to this massive swirl of conspiracy theories online and then on Fox News about who was responsible, like the government did it or Hillary Clinton did it or uh, some like cabal of secret people did it, shadowy forces. And the book is kind of Andy's five-year effort to unravel both what happened in the murder and also where all of that stuff came from. So we talked about how he did it and what it's like to kind of immerse yourself in the fever swamps of online conspiracy. I do remember that story, and I remember it as unbelievably grim. And I hope that you asked him a little bit about just like what in him would make him want to spend five years in that grimness. Yeah, it's dark. Did you ask him that? I did. That's good. Our show is produced in partnership with the fine people at Vox. Thanks to them. Now here's Evan with Andy Kroll. Andy, welcome to the Longform Podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's nice to have you. You are you're currently on book tour, living out the glories of book tour in motel rooms around the country. How has it been? How's the the reaction been? How's the reception been to the book? I mean, it's been great to see people turn out in these different far-flung places. I mean, I've been in Cocoa Beach, Florida, and Washington, D.C. I'm now in Omaha, Nebraska, which is obviously a special place, given that this is where Seth Rich was from. His family still lives here. I spent a lot of time reporting out here. Is it 50 degrees and 30-mile-an-hour winds outside my window and kind of uh, intimidatingly cold at times. 
Yes, it is. Um, am I drinking that like instant coffee that comes in your hotel room <laughs> yeah. that you mix the powder into? Yes, I am. Yes. But I've learned to love the instant powder and the <laughs> hotel room coffee. That is the glory of the book tour. <laughs> I feel like the quintessential book tour experience is the one where someone books you into like a Barnes and Noble, but they weren't quite expecting you. It's the wrong day. And there's just like one person sitting there. Everybody seems to have that one time. But have you had that? Or or have you had mostly like people actually coming to see you who know about the book? I haven't had that mix up yet. But one of my best friends in DC had exactly that story. I had a a book event at Politics and Prose, the wonderful independent bookstore in DC. But my really good friend, he showed up a week early to my book party and apparently was sitting in a crowd of like 12 people listening to someone <laughs> talk about some obscure like American history book and thinking that maybe this person was the opening act for his friend, Andy Kroll. <laughs> but then I just never showed up and apparently he kind of... Homer Simpson his way into the hedge and sort of stepped up, backed up and left the bookstore and then told me a week later, he's like, well, this is my second time. Oh, wow. I've been to politics and prose. He did. He did come again. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to see if the staff recognized him, but sadly they did not from his previous appearance. (laughs) So the book now, I feel like the very prologue of the book, both like asks and sort of answers the kind of question I would naturally have you know, the Seth Rich murder became such a huge event. Uh, it's amazing, the tendrils of this thing. But when it when initially happened, what was it about this that drew you to it specifically? You were, were you at National Journal at the time? Where were you working at that time? I was actually freelancing at that time, writing for California Sunday Magazine, a few of the New Republic, a few other places. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I was sort of a gun for hire at that point. And so the initial murder made the news, but like, what was it about it that kind of stuck to you? It was a strange start to a reporting journey, something unlike practically any other story, actually any other story yeah. that I've ever had. You, you know how this works. When we start off on a story, it's because we got a tip from someone or we read some fascinating, intriguing nugget in the news, some line in like the 13th or the 50th paragraph of a news story that we kind of like circle or, you know, drop into a Google file and say, okay, I got to come back to that later. This story was the opposite of that. I had run in similar social circles with Seth Rich in DC. I mean, we weren't all that different. You know, he was 27 when he was killed. I was 30 or 31 at that point. So not that far off in age, mm-hmm. both Midwestern guys, both had moved to DC right after college thinking, you know, that we could make our mark on the nation's capital, the political center of the universe. He went to work in politics and I, I went to work in journalism, but I had kind of through these mutual friends we had in common, had kind of known this guy. I certainly knew of him and knew about him and had bumped into him parties and bars and terrible weekend soccer teams that we both played on as one does (laughs) as a 20 something in Washington, DC. When he was killed, there was, as you might imagine, coverage in the local news in DC. And I remember a friend sending it to me, sending me 
a link to one of these stories. I was out in California traveling, hustling in the freelance mm-hmm. mode at that point. And so I saw this story and didn't process it in a journalistic way at all. I processed it as fellow person in DC trying to make it, you know, scraping by, making little money, all that kind of stuff. There was also a feeling as well of there, but for the grace of God, go I. I mean, I'd walked home from a bar way too late at night. I'd walked home talking on the phone when I shouldn't have, something I certainly don't do anymore. There was an eerie sense of that could have been me. Yeah. And people can intuit, but people who may not remember, like, that's what happened to him. You know, he was out at a bar, had a bunch of drinks, went home, but then walked around talking to people on the phone and then was murdered. But no one, there was no clear footage. There were no witnesses. No one knew exactly what had happened. His neighborhood had been plagued by armed robberies all summer long. Weirdly similar crimes that almost certainly were committed by the same two people. Jumping out of an alley, masks on, armed with uh, what the victims had said looked like a handgun, robbing people for their valuables, especially their cell phones. Seth's murder matched those kinds of details, talking on the phone, shot several times, you know, the reporting I did in the book suggested that it was a revolver that was used to kill him. And so it matched these these previous armed robberies in his neighborhood. But of course, those people weren't killed and Seth was. The cops I talked to believe that he probably tried to fight back and probably said, you know, you're not taking my phone, you're not taking my wallet, screw you. And it ended the way that it ended. And that is what I was absorbing and thinking about and talking to my friends about, you know, getting under the the text chains and saying, holy cow, can you believe that this happened? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until almost a month later that the journalistic part kicked into gear when this murder becomes an entirely different beast. Yeah. And it, I know it morphed, but like, what is the fundamental belief by the conspiracy theorists about Seth Rich's murder? The core tenet of the Seth Rich conspiracy theories was that he had stolen these tens of thousands of emails and memos, research documents, and other material from the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, where he worked and had provided those records to WikiLeaks. People will remember that WikiLeaks published a bunch of different hacked information during the 2016 campaign. A lot of the attention, a lot of the media frenzy centered around when WikiLeaks published John Podesta's emails. Podesta was the campaign chairman for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Those emails, the Podesta emails, were also released right at the exact same time as the Access Hollywood video and as the intelligence community in the U.S. put out a statement saying, hey, Russia is interfering in our election and here's the different ways it's happening. So the Podesta emails loom large, but they were not the first leak that WikiLeaks put out into the world. Right. The first one was these stolen DNC records. Now, the intelligence community said this was part of a much larger intelligence operation to interfere with the 2016 election. There's obviously some dispute about whether the Russian government orchestrated that operation to elect Donald Trump or to just get people riled up, disrupt the campaign inflame tensions and so on. 
but there's no real dispute at all that the DNC leaks, that first WikiLeaks release had come from this Russian intelligence operation, which obviously didn't look good if you were the candidate who seemed to benefit from that, then Republican nominee Donald Trump. And so this conspiracy theory fueled by Julian Assange himself and by all manner of Republican operatives, online influencers, they all rally behind this unproven claim that no, actually, it was this murdered young DNC staffer, Seth Rich, who had grabbed all this data and had given it to WikiLeaks. And they came up with all kinds of reasons for why he would do that, that he was a Bernie Sanders supporter, a Bernie bro who didn't like the Clintons and wanted to expose the Clintons. And of course, for decades leading up to 2016, there was a very popular and enduring conspiracy theory that the Clintons had a history of killing people who got in their way on their march toward political power, Clinton body count. Like 20 people, like it kept going up. Yes. This notion that the Clintons, while in addition to being a former president, United States Senator in Hillary's case, a Secretary of State, were also you know, one of the most prolific serial killers in American history, because of course that makes sense. But people were primed to believe that the Clintons would do something nefarious. And so the Clintons were accused of also ordering this hit on Seth Rich. And so that is the the fundamental core of this Seth Rich conspiracy theory. And the number of things that sort of had to happen for it to become what it became, this kind of phenomenon root of conspiracy theories. But like, were you from the beginning tuned into like, oh, I see what's starting to happen around this? Or was there a kind of moment where it got big enough that you kind of tuned back into it and said, oh my God, what happened? I thought this was going to go away. It was definitely the latter. The explosion of viral memes and conspiracy theories got so big that I couldn't not see it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember sitting at my computer one day in the fall of 2016, not thinking about Seth Rich and actually having stopped following the story about the murder just because I thought that that story had more or less played out until we got an arrest or some news in the investigation. And I remember looking at the right-hand side of Twitter and seeing Seth Rich's name trending. And I thought to myself, did I not get enough sleep last night? Is there a smudge on my glasses that I need to get out? Because I'm <laughs> I'm seeing something here that is not processing with what I think I know in my head. Yeah. But it was very real. It was the first major spike in the Seth Rich conspiracy theory had happened because Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks, had brought up Seth in an interview. And that had sent the online conspiracy theory industrial complex into a frenzy. And so I spent a few days kind of going down the rabbit hole trying to retrace how this happened, how this, again, it's a pretty normal guy in D.C. that I had run in a similar crowd with was now trending next to like Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and all the other crazy things that people were saying in 2016. But then I would step away from it a little bit and then it would pop back up again. It was almost like the story kept reemerging in a way that I couldn't ignore. I couldn't avoid and 
that was about five years ago. And that's about as long as it took me to figure it out and put it all into a book. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, so then at that point, how did you sort of attack the reporting? Because, you know, by the time it gets big, then this sort of circus grows around it. And how do you kind of find your way into that? What were your first couple moves to try to get yourself into the story? My first instinct was that this could be a book. I was probably in the mindset wanting to write a book at that point. I mean, you know, you you work in our world, people are always asking you, you know, are you going to turn your story into a book or what's your book idea? And I was kind of coming up empty-handed when people asked me those questions. But then this one came along and my first thought then was, wow, maybe this could be the book. And I had some early conversations with the press guy who'd been helping Seth Rich's parents. And it was clear that he both agreed with me and thought, yeah, like if you knew one one hundredth of what I knew, you would definitely think this was a book. But it was also clear that the story was very much still playing out. And so what I tried to do was, how can I kind of jump onto this treadmill that is already moving at 10.0 or whatever, <laughs> right. and try to like get on and keep up and get up to speed, figure out who I need to know, what I need to know. And that also helped overcome one of the biggest challenges, which was convincing Seth Rich's family that I was someone worth talking to. They had been inundated by so many requests that they were skeptical of anyone who came along and said, we want to talk to you, let alone, we want to write a book about you. Yeah. I wondered a lot about that because it's not only just the normal sort of media frenzy, but then they unwittingly get involved with some of the people who are spreading the very conspiracies about their son. So how do you distinguish yourself? Like, What were your approaches to sort of convince them or just people in their orbit that you were doing something different? I made it clear right at the beginning that I knew that this story was really important. And I knew that it had larger ramifications, bigger themes for how screwed up American politics has become. And I, you know, I, I tried to convey that to them right away that, I, you know, I think this story captures something larger about this insane time that we're living in. I also made clear to them that I know that you are extremely distrustful of anyone that you do not know right now. But I'm going to continue working on the story. And I started covering it in a small way, covering the family's lawsuits, breaking off little pieces here and there. There were discovery documents and fascinating emails, records that surfaced in the lawsuits that I would also report on. And I think just doing the work, doing it in an honest, accurate way really helped such that by the time they were ready and able to open up and want to tell their story, I think they understood that I was not someone who was going to manipulate it and use it for my own and that I was in it for the right reasons. But it took years. It took years of, you know, I'm out here trying to figure out what actually happened and not with some different agenda. But it takes time and there's no substitute for the time. You can't fast forward through this part of the process. Mm-hmm. There's something about seeing it, the detail when you walk through the stories of the way people exploited this family's grief and the people just did not care about that. I mean, like Julian Assange comes off that way, just like casually exploiting the most extreme grief that a family can experience. And my question is like, did that surprise you 
when you got into it? Or is that something where you were like, oh yeah, I know people are like that. Or did it hit you as you went through the reporting, uh, like in a personal way? It was a really bizarre experience coming to grips with what you're just describing. And I say that because I was deep, deep in this story from 2017 to really early 2022, pretty much finishing the book. And so I was seeing in the very specific ways how people in the political world had lost this sense of treating each other with basic human decency, with a kindness that is being chipped away at if not completely demolished with a sledgehammer in the context of doing the book. And then at the same time, I'm watching as the broader political world is moving in the same direction. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, it played out in a way that, you know, I'm working on the book at night, in the morning, on weekends, stealing time here and there to to put this thing together because I didn't really take much of any book leave to do it, which I regret in hindsight. (laughs) But at the same time, I'm covering national politics for most of this time for Rolling Stone. And I'm seeing these same kinds of things play out out on the campaign trail at events I'm going to or watching candidates where there is this element of dehumanization that becomes increasingly a feature of American politics at the same time that I was going back and really putting it together in fine grained detail for the book. And I can't say that it left me feeling particularly good about American politics, but it was also why this story, Seth Rich's story, kept drawing me in so much because in this very specific tale, I was seeing all of these changes, all of these dynamics that were happening almost at the same time on a sort of broader national, if not international level. Does that make it hard for you to do the more like magazine profile kind of stuff that you would traditionally do, you know, you've done a ton of profiles of, you know, big political candidates, but also these sort of like behind the scenes people, the chief of staff, the Ted Cruz's dad, like, does that sort of change your outlook on what is the value of this sort of straight ahead approach when there's all of this inhumanity swirling around it? When you write one of these political profiles, you want to try to find the humanity, the interesting contradictions, the nuances of the person that you're writing about. Could be you're writing about Ted Cruz's dad. Could be you're writing about some you know, up-and-coming campaign manager like this guy Jeff Rowe that I wrote about. You know, you're writing about Nancy Pelosi or you're writing about Jerry Brown, the former governor of California. And you want to find some part of these different people that have really kind of become two-dimensional television set figurines in a way because that's how we you know, consume our media and our politics so much these days. I always wanted to make them seem complicated. I wanted to try to find that thing that makes them tick, that helps explain them to the world, that, that, that fills them out in human form. It's a really, it's much more difficult to do that when some of these people running for office are pushing us in this inhumane direction, are saying things that feed into this growing sort of resentment, antagonism, 
hostility between people who just don't agree with each other. I haven't done a lot of these stories lately because I, I feared that it would be impossible to try to get past that animosity, to try to break down these, you know, really outward, nasty kind of positions and stances. And for some reason, there just isn't as much appeal to me, given the direction of politics, the way in which, you know, tearing down and dehumanizing your opponent has become just part and parcel of, of getting elected now. Yeah. And then it's mixed with something that you also bring to the surface very clearly in the book, which is the sort of like Pizzagate and then QAnon kind of stuff. There's this like game aspect to it where like all Mm. these people are kind of like playing this online game. And as you're reporting it and getting into it, do you feel like you're like trapped in a game? It depends on the game that I'm choosing to immerse myself into. With Pizzagate, it had been so thoroughly absorbed by QAnon by the time I was going back and piecing it together and trying to understand why it happened and how it worked, what the rules of the game were, that I didn't feel too much like I was being forced to play the game myself as much as like an anthropologist Mm. picking through some some game that this weird, bizarre online tribe was playing. With QAnon, it was a different situation. That one felt like I was jumping into the middle of something that was very much live, very much ongoing, and in some ways was like trying to grab onto fistfuls of sand only to have the sand sort of pour out the bottom of my hand because it was changing. The platforms were deleting things that I had, you know, bookmarked, right? which I eventually learned to screenshot, but screenshot religiously. I would recommend to anyone doing this work. Um, and so that would mess with my head a little more and I would have to sort of step away from the computer, take a walk around the block. It's also why I wanted to really have compelling human characters in the book who would balance out this online craziness, the rich family, a few of their lawyers, some friends. I wanted that human voice, human experience, because I thought that that would give the book some gravity, that that would sort of bring people back down to the ground. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listen to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of long form get a whole month free. 
Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier. The people in this story, it's one of the mind-bending things in the story. It's like, which of these people actually believe that the Clintons murdered Seth Rich? Does anyone actually believe this? Where did you get to on that question? Or does it matter? I mean, in some ways, it doesn't matter because the end result is the same. People online are propagating this theory that the Clintons had Seth Rich killed because he had carried out this brave act of leaking or whistleblowing. Sean Hannity pushes the story on his show multiple nights in primetime to millions of people. Does it matter whether Sean Hannity believes it or not because he's doing it on his show? The effect is the same of whether it's an act or it is a genuinely held belief. But I share the same fascination as you do, to be completely clear. And I tried as best I could with different people in the book to resolve that question. Unfortunately, I think that the answer in a lot of cases is that people do believe it. Hmm. I'm not convinced that Tucker Carlson's persona on Fox is who he actually is, as much as it is a piece of performance art. Probably shouldn't call it art. That it is a performance. A performance, yeah. Yeah. From what I've heard and what I've read about what he is like when the cameras are not on at Fox News, I don't believe that that's who he is all the time. I do believe that Sean Hannity is who he seems to be on television. And I absolutely believe that Alex Jones is who he is on television. You know, Alex Jones is, it makes a cameo of sorts in the book. He was one of the big spreaders of Pizzagate early on in late 2016, um, early 2017. And I interviewed a lot of people who had dealt with Jones, who had tried to get him to take back what he said about Pizzagate to try to correct the record on that. And all the evidence seemed to suggest that Alex Jones is Alex Jones and that when he turns off the lights at InfoWars or turns off the mic on his podcast, his radio shows, whatever, that's still who he is. He's just found a way to make an incredible amount of money off of it, as we learned from these Sandy Hook trials in the last month or so. Right. I also think that those Sandy Hook trials showed Alex Jones to be pretty much under oath the same guy who gets up there and talks about, you know, child uh, trafficking networks and Sandy Hook and all that kind of stuff. All the reporting I did on Hannity as well. Interestingly, what I heard from people who worked at Fox was that Hannity has the same kind of views and cultural positions, if you will, that the place he's coming from when he gets up and monologues on his radio show or on Fox is who Sean Hannity is but also that he was kind of known for being a nice guy yeah, and someone who would like ask you how your kids were. And if one of them was sick or something, he would say, you know, what can I do to help? And can I make a call for you? He, he was known for being a kind of an affable presence in the Fox newsroom and then just a total maniac on television. But the things that fuel his radio show, which I do think is somewhat the more extreme version of what his Fox show is, that that is the worldview that he has. That is who he is. 
that is what makes him in some ways successful because you're getting Sean Hannity pure unfiltered. Well, that's the thing. Is it more depressing in one direction or the other? I'm, I'm not sure. Like, Yeah, I don't know either. It's, But it's an interesting question. And I feel like a more valuable one now when there's this moment where people are trying to hold these people accountable, the, the Hannity's, the Alex Jones's, for the things they say on television. And I think this question of do you believe this or is this an act is going to kind of become more salient the more that people try to hold these people to account. Yeah. And there's a reporter character in your book who is not you, a reporter for the news side of Fox, um, who's pursuing the Seth Rich story. And some questionable journalism takes place. And I'm wondering what it felt like to cover another journalist who was trying to like figure out what was going on here. And you kind of come in and pull the cover off how disastrous her attempts at reporting were. And what was that like to have that character in there? And did you talk to her? Right. I, this is the former Fox News reporter named Malia Zimmerman. I did try to talk to her quite often. And in the end, we did exchange some emails. She answered some questions that I'd sent her via email pretty late in the reporting process. You know, it, it, I'm not one of these people who loves to jump on other journalists to dunk on them on Twitter or whatever. It's just not my style. I, I kind of think of what we do as, uh, you know, a, a noble profession, which is probably going to get me, you know, some, some haters out there for, for using such lofty terms. But I appreciate journalists out there doing this work in a time when it feels like it's harder to do it than ever. But in this case, I had to know, and it was critical to know in the story, how did this horribly flawed Fox News story come to be? It's this phenomenon I encountered throughout doing the book, which was people on social media, or in this case for Fox News, putting a story out into the world or a tweet or Facebook post, YouTube video, whatever, out into the world that promoted this notion, again, that Seth Rich had been this almost like Edward Snowden type figure inside the Democratic National Party who leaked all these records. And I was just amazed that no one sort of stopped to think about the implications of pushing this claim out into the world. Not only was it on its face incredibly explosive, but it was also accusing basically every branch of the federal government, all of these different institutions of cooperating, participating in one of the biggest cover-ups in history. Because remember, everyone was saying, you know, all these leaks happened because of a foreign interference operation on American soil. This is all the evidence for it. This is why we believe it to be true. And so to put a story onto the world that said, actually, no, it was this guy who worked at the DNC not only are you putting explosive information proactively into the world, but you're also accusing all of these people of perpetrating something enormous. And it just shocked me that people were so quick to jump to this notion, despite the lack of any evidence, given that all of these people were going to be implicated, the White House, the CIA, the FBI, the Justice Department, you just go down the list, it's incredible. And that's what drew me to this Fox News story and why I really wanted to, to I mean, I zoom in, zoom in really closely on this episode in the book. That was a fun part about writing a book was 
you know, when do I slow down the story? When do I speed up the story? It's kind of like this accordion effect. And I did kind of through a whole lot of documents that had come up in these court cases, have enough material to piece together how this Fox News story came to be. A story that was published in May of 2017 and just flat out said Seth Rich was the leaker for these DNC emails. What comes out of those records is a reporter starting with this really explosive conclusion and then trying to backfill it, trying to prove that it was true, which obviously isn't how we really do our job. And yeah, we start with the kind of idea of the story or maybe even a thesis, but usually not the absolute finish line ending of the story and then go out and say, okay, how can I show that this is real? Where's the corroborating evidence? And that's just not how our profession works. And it was also a window into how Fox News works because by all indications, Fox News wanted this story to be real. It wanted the story to be real because it would go viral. It would make an enormous impact. And it would, of course, be a great favor to the then sitting president of the United States, Donald Trump, because he could say, look, hey, this whole Russia thing is fake, just as I've been telling you for months. It was this guy, Seth Rich. Yeah. And this story, of course, blows up on them in a big way and is is retracted a week after it's published. And it's, to this day, one of the biggest scandals in Fox News history. But there's something so crazy making about it when I read all those details, because it's like a perfect example of what conspiracy theorists or the QAnon world, what they would project onto a reporter at you know, ProPublica, The Times, whatever, Rolling Stone, like they think that's what you're doing, that you have a story that you already know what it's going to be. And you're just trying to fill in these blanks. I would think that you reporting it, it would make you a little crazy to be like, this is what they say about us. And I've found it's actually what they're doing. This is what they were saying about me as I'm reporting this actual book. (laughs) Yeah, And in some cases, some smaller pieces about this story. Oh, well, you had your own preconceived, already reached conclusion about this. And why would we even bother talking to you? Because you clearly have an agenda. And it's like, but you understand what I'm asking you about. I'm literally asking you, why was this story written before the reporting was done? Why are you asking your sources to confirm for you the things that you need for the story to actually exist? I mean, we have this we have this great, I don't even know what to call it, a sort of a, a policy or a, a way of thinking about reporting a ProPublica, which is you have to prosecute the story. You get a draft of your story, you've done your reporting, and then your bosses and your colleagues attack every angle of that story to try to find where the weak spots are, what you have to shore up, where you haven't fully done the work. The opposite happened here. It's like if you prosecuted the first paragraph of this story, you had a big problem. And yet the story was published. It made it to the front page of the Drudge Report. It spread all over the world. And the other really fascinating part of the Fox News piece of the book that that also made me kind of crazy in some ways, you have one part of Fox News scrambling to understand why this story they just published by this reporter, the moment it's published, is coming under attack from all of the people in a position to know that it's not true, the FBI, the DC police, the rich family, and so on. The story is in trouble almost from the get-go. And 
Fox is scrambling internally to figure out, wait, what happened here? What, what's gone wrong? Is this story flawed? And at the same time, Sean Hannity in his world, the, the primetime opinion world, is running with this story night after night. And I guess that just stuck with me that within Fox, you would have these two very different things playing out at the same time and that Sean Hannity just felt like, you know, I'm going to run with this thing for as long as I can and until they tell me I can't, which more or less is what happened. He was going to have this hacker character, Kim.com, on his show who was going to blow the story wide open. <laughs> and then right before Kim.com was supposed to go on, Sean Hannity said, oh, I've talked with my lawyers and I'm not going to be discussing this matter anymore. Only then did he back away. But up until then, he had been pushing this, again, to you know audiences of a couple million people a night. While Fox elsewhere, its executives, its lawyers, its editors, its reporters are like, oh my gosh, have we made this huge mistake? What what went wrong here? And ultimately, they, they retracted the story that set all this in motion in the first place. Perhaps no character is more craven in their injection into the story than Kim.com. Kim.com, nothing to do with this. He's just like, I was involved. Kim.com has <laughs> got to be one of the strangest characters that I've ever come across. I mean, I know you have dealt with more than your share of utterly bizarre and unbelievable characters, but Kim.com, he's on the run in New Zealand, indicted for you know copyright violations or pirating something. I mean, he is, and he, and he comes out of nowhere and says... Uh, you know, oh, yes, I have information about this. Like, like th could this story get any weirder? Oh, yes, it can. Here's Kim.com. But we should say, like, this story also, I mean, there is a kind of a real murder investigation by real police. And it seems like some of the people who are made crazy by all this, too, are the prosecutor and the cops who are trying to, like, actually just figure out what's going on. But I feel like I want to have you tell the story of how you, there's a great character in there, the prosecutor, how you, like, got to her because I loved that part of the book. That was just like classic reporting move. The classic reporting move that got me in the door with that federal prosecutor, a woman named Deborah Sines, who'd worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. I think actually I picked up from someone who's been on this show before, uh, Nick Schmidl, reporter for The New Yorker. Oh, yeah. I remember hearing Nick talk about a story he'd written, I'm pretty sure about Chris Kyle, the American sniper guy. Yeah, yeah. And I remember Nick talking a lot about writing people letters, how he used, you know, handwritten letters as a way to get to hard to reach sources or family members who were reticent to talk, people who otherwise weren't responding to phone calls and emails, but also without like going and knocking on their door, which Sometimes works and sometimes gets like a shotgun pulled on you, which no one wants to do. <laughs> I'd heard that Deb Sines, the prosecutor, had retired after working on this case for a couple of years, the Rich Murder case. I knew she would be a useful source. I didn't know it at that time that she would also be this incredibly colorful character that, that she ended up being. I found her address. I wrote her a letter by hand which I don't think I had done since I was like nine years old at Cub Scout <laughs> camp, like writing the letter to my parents about how much I hated it and they needed to come pick me up and take me home. That was the last handwritten letter I'd written to someone. 
But I thought, hey, you know, this seems to have worked for someone else. It worked for Nick Schmidt. Well, maybe I'll give this a try. And that actually is what opened the door. She emailed me after getting the letter and said, wow, no one has written me a letter by hand before. Your handwriting is total crap, (laughs) but I made out most of it. And yeah, we can talk. And we talked on the phone from there. And then ultimately I went down to her uh, place in Florida where I interviewed her a bunch of times. That, of course, was its own adventure. This is the kind of prosecutor who wants to conduct the interview sitting by her pool at noon. She opens up a pack of Marlboro Golds and then offers me a shot of Jack Daniels. I don't think I'd even eat lunch by that point. But uh, that is that is how this works. There, there's one other funny story I'll tell about her as well. I found that these former homicide prosecutors and homicide detectives love talking about their old cases. Oh, yeah. Especially the ones that they solved, but also the ones that they didn't. She, oh gosh, I mean, I spent days down there listening to all these different cases and different witnesses, criminals, crazy stuff that had happened in a 30-year career solving homicides and working at the Justice Department. And I'll always remember we were sitting at a beachfront seafood shack. She was telling me about a case and we had this huge tower of seafood in front of us. I figured I had to like splurge for the good seafood tray if, you know, I wanted to keep Deb signs happy and keep the conversations rolling. And I remember I was like picking out a clam or something. She was talking all about some case totally unrelated to Seth Rich. And at one point she had stopped talking and I was like, wait, what, you know, what, what, what's up? And I sort of looked up at her and she'd gotten a piece of seafood stuck in her in her throat oh, no. and I had to like run across the table and you know they, the Heimlich maneuver apparently is not what you're supposed to do first you're just supposed to really like bang someone on the back to try to like pop whatever it is out that, that they got stuck in their throat and so I'm, I'm in the middle of this seafood restaurant with this grizzled former homicide prosecutor people are all around us and I'm literally chopping her on the back trying to <laughs> dislodge whatever it is I got in there thankfully it was dislodged, and I think it all sort of ended up on top of my recorder that was on the table <laughs> in between us. And she took a sip of her drink and was like, okay, where was I? What was I, what was I talking <laughs> did about? That, did that bring you to like a new level of intimacy, or did you it just kind of like pretend like it never happened? It did. It did. It did. I always say to her, I'm like, well, you remember that time that I saved your life, right? She's <laughs> like, you didn't save my life. That was the little thing stuck in my throat and I would have been fine. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I saved your life. It did elevate the relationship. Um, but I would not, you know, necessarily recommend that to other people as a go-to move. So it was more sort of a product of necessity. Was there a question for you in whether the Seth Rich murder is not solved um, still? And was there a question for you whether you needed to wait to see if that would happen before the book was published? Absolutely. It was a question I got a lot when we were pitching the book to publishers. Is the murder going to be solved by the time you're done reporting the book? Some people even asked, are you going to solve it in the course of doing the book? I mean, I think we, for better or worse, live in this time when you know true crime podcasts are all the rage and the reader or the listener or the viewer wants to know who done it 
by chapter 30 of the book or episode 10 of the podcast or the television show. I thought that was kind of a weird question to get from potential publishers. I mean, I guess I understand they just wanted to know, but you know, I, I definitely got a much deeper understanding for how homicide investigations work, how challenging it can be, especially once you get outside of that, you know, one month, six month, certainly one year mm-hmm. post crime window. It's really, really hard to just crack a case. And it really takes, as it's been described to me, it really requires someone coming out of the blue and saying, I have information or I heard something. And who knows why that person does that? Usually because they might be facing some kind of criminal charge or they might have some incentive motivation to talk about it. I definitely hoped that the case would be solved in the course of doing the reporting for the book, not only for another element of closure for the story, but also for Seth's family. You know, it, it, it's been wonderful to get to know them, Joel and Mary Rich, especially Seth's parents in the course of doing the book. I think for both of them, solving the case would bring some closure, but especially for Mary. She said this to me, and I described this near the end of the book. There will never be that real sense of closure for her until she knows who did it. Joel, I think, has found other ways to feel like he is carrying on Seth's memory, Seth's legacy, scholarships, rooms dedicated for Seth, a debate tournament named after Seth. Seth was a really avid debater in high school. Mary wants that justice, though. She wants accountability. She wants an arrest. She wants that person found Mm -hmm. and held accountable for what they did. I wish that I had been able to have that moment in the book, and I still hope it'll happen. Maybe that's the, you know, new afterword in the paperback if we are so lucky. But for now, it's ongoing. It remains active and they continue to look for evidence, look for witnesses, find some kind of breakthrough in this case that's now more than six years old. And I have a couple more things and then I'll let you go, but it seemed like from the book that you actually didn't get to talk to them or sit with them until pretty late in the process because they had these lawsuits going on. And I was very interested in how that felt for you because you're immersed in the world of trying to understand everything that's swirled around his death And then you have a moment later where you now are showing up, you're going to sit with them. How did you kind of prepare yourself to then do that? I felt so nervous, honestly, going into that first real interview with them. It was at this fancy hotel in New York that they were staying at during a brief trip to the East Coast. And I remember standing in the lobby of the hotel waiting for Joel to come down and get me and feeling legitimately jittery, you know, like shaking a little bit, certainly shaking in the hands a little bit, because I had been following this story. I had been studying these people, Joel and Mary Rich, as well as all of these other characters in the book for so long at that point. And the longer that that went on, the more they took on these larger-than-life presences in my mind. The more I had sort of built them up, I couldn't help but start to fill in the picture of who they were based on everything that I had seen and read and heard, even though I had not had the chance to sit down and interview them. I I was doing that over a span of years. 
Mm-hmm. And I really tried to clear all that out before that first conversation. I tried to come in with a blank slate, no preconceived ideas, but it was really hard to do. And I, I'm sure I didn't really do it. And when I went back and listened to that tape, I cringed a little bit. I was too eager to kind of jump in with, you know, follow-up questions or to comment on this, respond, react, laugh at a joke, whatever. I, yeah, it was kind of painful to be honest, because I think I had one had too much coffee and two was just so wired, spring-loaded to have this conversation. Thankfully, the follow-up interviews, all of that artifice had fallen away after the first one and the follow-up interviews were much more natural. It flowed a lot more. You know, I, I, I've i gotten to know them really well. And I just had dinner with them the night before. And we'll see them again later today, actually. So I'm, I feel really thankful that they thought that the book did a good job of capturing who Seth was and who they are and what they've gone through, that they want to continue, you know, being a presence in my life. And so for you, something that was similar between you and Seth Rich is sort of like, you came from the Midwest, you moved to Washington, D.C., you thought, I'll make a mark on the world, you and journalism, him and politics are politics adjacent. And coming out of this, do you feel different about your own approach to covering politics? Do you feel more cynical about it, that it needs to change, or that you see something different that you didn't see before that will change how you do it? I felt like the chance to write a book about one of these major stories of the last half decade left me with the feeling that if I'm not trying to get down to the most human level in some of this political reporting and trying to understand what's happening in the country, I almost feel like I'm part of the problem, to be honest, that Mm -hmm. I am contributing to these larger forces that are pulling people apart and causing us to see someone who disagrees with us, not as a human who disagrees with us, but as an enemy that I cannot reconcile myself with. I don't want to be part of the problem with the journalism that I put out into the world. You know, I think a book has ruined me for writing hot takes (laughs) and spicy Twitter dunks and all of these other one and two dimensional bits of ephemera that I can't do it anymore. I wasn't really a big fan of it in the first (laughs) place, but I can't do it anymore. I mean, a book forces you to look at the world in a much more fine-grained, humane, empathetic way. And there's no going back from that. That's the way it has to be. And I just need to take that forward with me with whatever it is I'm writing about. Well, I will. I will miss those Andy Kroll spicy hot takes, but <laughs> I will. I'm not even good at hot takes, to be honest. There's so many people who are better at it. No one's missing my hot takes See and my field. spicy dunks. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for giving us so much time. I really appreciate it. Oh, this was really great. I was so looking forward to it, and I really appreciate the time. That's all for this week's show. Thanks to Andy for coming on. You'll find his work at ProPublica, and his book is called Death on W Street. Susan Peterson edited the show this week. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. 
My other co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Thanks to Vox, our partner in producing the show. And thanks to you for listening. We will see you next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.